Morning, folks. Welcome to our ongoing study, our never-ending study of Proverbs. Um, Sunday morning, November 18th, the week starting Thanksgiving. And just so you know, I have a number of more studies out of Proverbs, and um, probably last is at least to the end of the year, and then beyond that I'll be talking to Dory. My preference is to continue shepherding the flock by teaching. I love to shepherd through teaching. So that's a maybe to Dory since it's his teaching fellowship and the powers to be, but anyway, so that's, we'll, we'll see about the future. This morning's subject is self-control. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, that there's true hope and power in this world to have our spirits under, under control, and that is by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending us your spirit. He comforts us. He brings us life. He shows us Jesus. He convicts us of our sin. And under his control, it is truly possible to produce the beautiful fruits of, uh, of him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and not least self-control. Show us what that looks like. Use the word of God to bring um, illumination to our hearts. And therefore, obedience and joy and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So until I was about 45, I played a lot of pickup basketball, actually as much as I could, and I was addicted to it. Not anymore. One time I was playing at the gym at uh, Texas Christian University, TCU, and I lived in Fort Worth. And same group of guys pretty much you know, all, all the time. I think we played Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. And I decided this day I was going to go inside. I'd rather just sort of stay outside and shoot, but this day I was going to go inside and try my... Try my hand in the lane right near the basket. And I was getting hacked. When they keep telling you, it's called getting hacked. Hacked. I was really getting hacked. And finally, I got hacked this one time. I took the ball. All the action stopped. <laughs> oh, before I tell you the story, let me tell you what my goals are when I go to play pickup basketball. My goals are to get exercise, to have fun, and to be a good witness. Who knows? Maybe some relationships can develop through this for the gospel. So clearly that's, and of course I have another goal that I'm not admitting, and that is to look confident. But another subject for another day. I always want to think, people think I'm a good player. So I was getting hacked, and I just had enough this one time. I took the ball, and I slammed it down. And everyone kind of went, he's the pastor. He just lost his cool. And, um, and I wanted to say, that's not me. But it was me. Given enough provocation, I, I lost my cool. Right? So in here, there's yeah, just enough hacking, and there it goes. Lost self-control. There goes my witness for the day. I don't know whatever came with that. So that's, that's sort of an, an introductory illustration to looking at this in all important subject of self-control. We start with this verse in Proverbs 16.32, who would read it for us at the top of the page. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than, than he who captures the city. We looked at that last week when we talked about anger, the, the, the whole point of being slow to anger. The second half of the verse tells you what power it takes to rule your spirit. More power than capturing a city. So you get this, we're going to get a lot of warfare imagery as we look at the subject of self-control, because it is warfare. So according to this image, self-control is about 
in about an internal warfare. So somebody read the first little phrase that we're saying that it's about. Here's your heart. Self-control is about what? What's the first phrase? Resistance is the pressure to do what you don't want to do. Okay, so here's pressure from the outside, and I've got to resist that. What's the next phrase? Restraint. Read the whole phrase. Oh, restraint. Fighting an impulse to respond unrighteously. So my impulse was to slam the basketball down. So self-control is restraint over an internal impulse. What's the next thing? So here's my desire to be a good witness, and I need strength to pull that to pass as circumstances are pressing on in me. And then I put captivity in there, because really the question at the heart of self-control is, to whom will you be a slave, sinner righteousness? And we always do what the taskmaster tells us to do. One of the wonderful benefits of the gospel is, we're going to see this as we go through the lesson, is that we are no longer dead in sin, slave to Satan, slave to sin, blind, all these adjectives that describe us in unbelief. That's what it's like to be in union with Adam. When you're born, we're all born in union with Adam. The gospel is a whole new identity. Now we're in union with Christ. And with that comes being made alive, free from the dominion of Satan, free from slavery to sin. Now we see we don't walk in darkness, we walk in light. So self-control is ultimately about seizing the truth of who you are now in Jesus. You're a slave of righteousness. You're free to obey. You no longer have to sin. You're not a slave to sin. Never when you're tempted do you say, I have no choice but to give in. That is not true. We are freed from the power of indwelling sin. Mary? What is the difference between self-control and like being impatient? It being uh, impatient? Are they close? Like, um, being impatient? Uh, yeah, you know, you're, uh, you're not, you just lose your patience. Are you talking about me, aren't you? No. <laughs> no, no. Yes. Yeah. Somebody want to take a stab at Mary's answer? What's the difference between... Yeah, how close are they? Uh, well, uh, losing, losing your patience is a self-control issue, right? Oh, your so patience is not under control. So that would be under the, the heading of self-control would be not being patient. Absolutely. And we'll look at it as we move through because what are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. And all these fruits have opposites, which is what happens when you lose control of your spirit. Rachel, did you want to add? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that self-control is an overarching category, and it has like... I'm sorry, can't hear you. Okay, um, I was going to say that self-control is like an overarching category. Yeah. Like yes, that's what we're going to see as we move through the handout. I don't know if that answered your question. If not, we'll come back to it. Okay. Notice that self-control touches all areas of life. Somebody read economically for us, Proverbs 21, 17. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. So remember, this is an aphorism, a short, pithy statement that as a rule is true. Okay? This isn't law. This is not a pro- It's an aphorism. This is typical Proverbs. Why is that the case? As a rule, the person who loves pleasure will not. Look, and honestly, I love wine. I love red wine. 
I, it's delicious. I like to drink it. Drink it almost every day. Uh, I don't think it's kept me from being economically secure. So as a rule, what's going on here? Frank? Yeah, this is basically all this person loves. Pleasure is ruling them. That will, as a rule, uh, lead you to poverty because you're going to spend all your money on your pleasure. You're going to spend all your money on your wine. Right? That's the idea. Modesty. Moderation? Moderation? Uh, yeah. Moderation. Yeah, right. Moderation. <laughs> How about occupationally? 20 verse 4. Okay, as a rule, if you don't tend to your field, your field doesn't yield the fruit it was designed to yield. As a rule. Right? Should you bail this guy out? Should you put him on welfare? A man's appetite works for him. Until he's starving bad enough, he won't learn from his lack of self-control. Okay? You might have him into your house, you might feed him a meal, but with that meal comes a good, stern encouragement. Brother, sister, do you know why you don't have any produce in your field? Wake up. What can we do to help you change? How about physically? Again, these are self-control touches all areas of life. 25, 16. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, lest you have it in excess and vomit it. Great. So here's honey. It's very sweet. It's good. One sweet taste leads to another sweet taste, leads to another, leads to... i got to stop. Terry? An example of that. I remember as a kid, my mom made a whole batch of sugar cookies. <laughs> I ate the whole thing. <laughs> I never touched a sugar cookie for years. Yeah, it was a bad experience afterwards, right? Okay, good. Socially, Proverbs 23, 1 and 2. Self-control issue. Who would read it for us? Someone who hasn't read yet. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. Okay. So, about two weeks ago, Dory and Kayleen had us over for dinner. I was very hungry. And she put out this lovely dinner. At like these lovely chicken pieces in this nice sauce. And I like, I wanted to keep eating and eating and eating. And I said, Mike, put a throat to you, put a knife to your throat if you give it. Now, Dory is not a, Dory is not a ruler, but I would have made myself look like a pig. I was feeling like a pig, and I was thinking in this verse, stop eating. And yeah, there's extra sitting there. And they always say, help yourself, and you're like, I'm going to look like a pig. So that verse really speaks to me. Relationally, self-control. Wisdom will deliver you from men who rejoice in doing evil and adulterous with her smooth words. So in the prologue, verses 1 through 9, we meet two major kinds of people that you get in trouble with. Evil people, they just rejoice in having a, uh, and doing evil to other people. It's a good time. Join us in this good time. And the adulterous woman or flip side, the adulterous man, here's a promise. Wisdom will deliver you from them. Wisdom will warn you. Wisdom, you, you do life God's way, and you will not get in trouble with these people because you're sufficiently warned about them. But that's a self-control issue. Spiritually, Proverbs 25, 28, we're going to look at, look at this in more detail on the next page, like a city whose walls are broken down as a man who lacks self-control. So we'll push pause on that. 
And then one more in terms of communication. Uh, Proverbs 10.19 says, who would read it? When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Okay. The more you talk, the greater your chances of sin. What is it about words that make it easy to sin with them? They are, are they easy to use? Simple. Just open your mouth and there they are. Words are the easiest thing we use in all, all of our lives. Words. It's so easy to talk. And they're reflexive. Right? You just, something happens and you want to talk. We react with words. And words are very, very powerful. And we'll do, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to be preaching a sermon on the, on the nature of words between now and, and Christmas, and we may do some more work on it in here. So we'll hear more about that later. So the consequences of broken down city walls, and I'm thinking of the verse there in 25:28, like a city whose walls are broken down as a man who lacks self-control. Here's, you know, in ancient times, your main defense against your enemies was the strength of your wall. When the enemy's coming, what do you do? You, everybody gets inside the city walls, you put guards up here, you, you, know, you shoot arrows down. So, so here are the walls of the city. You live inside. Here's your house, here's my house, here's Mary's house. And what's the image? What's the image? Well, the, 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 either you set up the, you know, the battering rams, or you, you, you know, the ramp that goes up, the, the enemy builds a ramp. Sometimes it takes time. I'm reading now in Jeremiah, and I noticed the time that when Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem, it was like three years later before the walls fell. But they fell. So the idea is, here's a breach in the wall, and in comes the enemy. I mean, think of the terror. Just the terror when you're living inside inside those walls. So it's a very provocative image. The city has lost its defenses and therefore is susceptible to attackers and plunderers. When you lose self-control, your heart is susceptible. And I actually think this, this is something I, I won't pontificate too long on, but I actually think, so it really doesn't matter what I think, but this is something for you to ponder, that when when, you, when there's an area of your life that you give yourself over to, a besetting sin, at the end of the handout, we're going to look at Hebrews 12, casting aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And that might be a different sin than for you, for you and me. But when we give ourselves over to a certain sin, we, we, there's a breach in the wall of our hearts here. I believe that opens up other areas in our hearts. Maybe doubt comes in. Maybe fear comes in. Maybe anger comes in. That doesn't specifically have anything to do with that one sin. That's just something to think about. Something to think about. Okay. Here's this that I'm struggling with. Oh yeah, maybe these things are related to that. So I've really got to do battle. Do you see the image? The, the city walls are down. You have no defenses. And you've lost your identity. You become overruled and run, overrun by strangers who do not have your community's best interests in mind. When the enemy comes in, are they concerned about the welfare of the inhabitants of the city? Absolutely not. So that's a terrible thing. You want, to, you want your local governors to be people who have your best interests in mind. Your enemies don't. 
And you've lost civility and order. A lawless city is in chaos. When good, helpful rule is demolished, anarchy ensues, and all that remains is to await which tyrant's going to come to power. And you know, many countries in our world today are ruled by tyrants. People, human beings, suffer greatly under bad governments. Lousy, awful governments. We can point to many places in our world today where that's the case. So here's the question for you and me. Which tyrant comes to power in your lawless heart? Will you be ruled by greed, sloth, sensuality, anger, fear, recklessness, envy, harshness, being critical, haughty, hateful, abusive, cold-hearted, foolish, unbelief, self-pity, craving to be in control, craving to be approved of, craving to be right, alcohol, drugs, defensiveness, being unapproachable, just to name a few. <laughs> but see, you, you, need, you do need to know the answer to that question. When your heart is not under control of the Holy Spirit, what is likely to be some of the first intruders into the city who want, who want to say, here I am. And those are things you need to do preemptive battle against. So what is self-control? Well, we know it's number nine in Paul's representative list of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to ask you to make some observations about this verse. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Observations about this list? Is it sequential? Meaning? Um, these are the first to be developed in your life? Is that what you mean? Uh, there you start off with uh, love, and that leads to what each one that follows. Okay. That's a good question. Are these that a good thing to ponder, to meditate on? What's another observation? Say that again, These are the product of the Holy Spirit. They're His fruits. He produces them in us. Good. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's actually singular, not fruits. Fruit. What else? Other observations? Yeah, you could really make the case that these things, and, and so self-control is last, maybe because it's the most difficult to... to um, Cultivate in our hearts, and maybe because Paul is saying, just like the Tenth Commandment, what's it related to ultimately? You shall not covet. What's it related to? The first. Because coveting is essentially being dissatisfied with God Himself. Not finding your heart's ultimate satisfaction in God. You're looking for something else. So the tenth and the first are very much wrapped up in each other. Any other observations? Do you think it's significant that love is the first one? I'm thinking 1 Corinthians 13. Well, we're going to hear that in the service today. What's the greatest virtue of all? Love, right? Faith, hope, and love, these three, but love is the greatest. What, uh, what, what, what um, virtue is missing from the list that I happen to be speaking a lot about these days? Humility. Paul! First question we're going to ask Paul when we get to heaven. <laughs> Why wasn't humility in this list? 
Because, but his lists are representative, right? This is not exclusive. This is a representative list. But boy, you wouldn't you expect humility to be in there? I don't know. You have to unpack that for a scale. I mean, if you really love the other person more than yourself, if you want to love God more than what you want to get out of this yeah. life and what you want to accomplish for yourself or how you want to, I don't know, where you see yourself at the highest point and goals that you have for yourself, if you put all that aside for love of God, that is humility. Love of brother, isn't that humility? That is humility. And one of the last sermons in the humility series is other-centeredness. If humility isn't producing other-centeredness, it isn't humility. That's the ultimate, and it's Philippians 2, right? Thinking of others more important than yourself. You can't do that, and that is what love is. It's putting others ahead of yourself. Good point. So those are some observations. Let's see if we can tease out some definitions of humility, of, of self-control based on this. First, someone read that for us with its example. Humility is? Slowness, slowness to react impulsively, slow to anger, or too impatient, worry, fear, criticism. Example, Peter draws his sword when Jesus is arrested. Okay, so that was an act of loss of self-control. Peter dropped right. And now can you blame Peter? No. You can't blame him. This is my Lord. These idiots have come up here to arrest him. I still have my sword on my side. He cuts off Malchus's ear. And we're told in the, in the, uh, in the Bible, which, which ear is it? It's whatever ear. Peter has probably done this, and Malchus is doing his head back like this, and he cuts it off. Of course, Jesus heals it. How would you like to be Malchus? Jesus Christ, is, you, you've come to arrest. Your ear is bleeding. You're in pain, and Jesus touches it, and I bet he's a believer. I bet we're going to beat him in heaven. Now, right? That's Malcolm. So, uh, yeah. Uh, was there a better way to go about this, Peter? Yeah. What's the impulse? Revenge. What should he have said? I'm going to wait Jesus out on this. Jesus is in control. Every for three years of spending every minute with him, I've seen that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he's always in control. I have to wait this one out as well. Next example. Read that for us. Next definition. You rule your spirit, desires, especially when they start to over... Epiphania? Epiphania. Epiphania. Um, example, King David on his palace rooftop. So, the Greek word in many of your translations for lust is epiphania. Now, thamia is the word for desire, pretty neutral word. When you put this prefix in front of it, prefixes in the Greek often intensify the meaning of the main word. So this is not, no longer desire, this is over-desire, inordinate desire, or craving or lust. So self-control is having this and it turning into that. David, you know the story. David is up on the rooftop, and the story begins, and I have a sermon on this, maybe I'll get to preach it for you. It says, it was the time of year when kings go out to battle. David's the king, where is he? He's in Jerusalem. He's not where God wanted him. At any rate, he's up on the rooftop, and he looks down, and there's Bathsheba. Now, she's not innocent in this matter. 
uh, in Jewish lore, she is despised. Bathsheba is despised. Because she's out there like this, in all likelihood. Anyway, David can't help but notice her. If he's looking around and he notices her, he can't help but notice her. And he might even say, she's beautiful. But at that point, that's where it's got to stop. She's beautiful. I've got to go back inside. He didn't. He kept looking, 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 desired, brought her up, and you know, the rest is Jerusalem gate. Murder, cover up, Uriah gets murdered, it's just a mess. And it's such an interesting story. Uh, that's an example where he did not rule his spirit. And incidentally, who of all the people in Israel knew the law of God better than anyone else? David. The king is the custodian of the law of God. He knew the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He knew the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. He knew the first commandment, as well as anyone in the whole world at that time. The law has no power to restrain your desires. He knew the law. Now, to some degree, yes, we have speeders, and that should restrain up as we go on the highways. But it's only the Holy Spirit could restrain like that. He knew the law of God. When you sin, you know the law of God. We need the Holy Spirit. The law, has, that's how Paul ends Colossians 2, doesn't it? All these things have the appearance of self-made religion, but are no power for restraining the flesh. And then it goes into chapter 3, where the mindset on Christ is the power to restrain the flesh. Next example, of uh, next definition of self-control. <clears throat> the ability to choose the most important over the urgent so the disciples are with Jesus in Gethsemane. They're tired. It's late. It's dark. They had wine. No one's drunk, but they had wine at the Passover meal. So it's sleepy time, right? Uh, and sleep probably feels pretty urgent. Oh, we're tired. But there's something more important, staying awake with Jesus. And he does rebuke them for falling asleep on him, right? Sleep later, guys. This is my moment of crisis. I need you. Next one. <clears throat> Definition of self-control? The wisdom to be ruled by principle versus feeling or impression or appearance. Example, she saw that the tree was good for food, delight to eyes, able to make wise. Okay, are any of those things bad in and of themselves? No, that's the nature of the tree. It's fine. Uh, they give her heart a good impression. They, this is the appearance she felt... She felt a, a, a pull towards those. What principle should have ruled her at this point? God said, don't eat it. That's enough. So she, um, she was not ruled by principle, but by feeling or impression. Next definition of self-control. The ethical sight to determine what is best for your soul at all times rather than what might seem good at any given time. Thank you, Frank. So in, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul, having mentioned Demas already in Colossians 4.14, he said, Demas sends his greetings with Luke. Demas is right in there with the apostles. Four to eight years later, he has to write this in 2 Timothy 4. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Somewhere in the span of four to eight years, what happened? 
it probably didn't happen overnight. Demas didn't probably wake up one day having been a partner of Paul's and go, I'm deserting them for the world. No, it was a series of many decisions that at the heart of it was probably not being a, a it's the ethical site to determine what's best for your soul at all times, whether what might seem good at any given time. It, it seems good to take a nap this morning rather than spend time in the Word of God, right? for example. So that's a very interesting case study. I also have a sermon called, Where in the World is Demas? <laughs> Alright, next one. Next definition. <clears throat> the inner fortitude to choose the godly role and ditch anything else competing with it. Example, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Luke 10.32. So this is, a, is an allusion to what parable? The Good Samaritan. Right? So this is either the priest of the Levite who's going by the Samaritan who's been mugged. Now you're the priest of the... And this is a very dangerous road. The road to Jericho is a very dangerous road. So you're, you're the Levite or the priest and you're going up the road. What are some goals you have in your mind? Some legitimate goals. Get there safely. Get there safely. Get home safely. Get home quickly. Get home quickly. Get home with all my money. Right? So, right? And, uh, well, safely is not put my, my life in any danger. So you're coming in, and then you see the Samaritan. All of a sudden, there's a new goal that needs to be introduced into the equation. What is it? Compassion, do good to my fellow man. All these competing goals. Which goal was sacrificed? Compassion. According to Jesus, the compassion goal, he didn't do good to his fellow man because these goals took precedent. So when we have decisions, when we lose self-control, it's often forfeiting certain goals to other goals. So the example I used last week of when I was driving home from my work in Pennsylvania, I had all these different goals. And if I drove like a maniac, even though I said one of my goals is to arrive safely, I was forfeiting that to the goal of getting there quickly. It's 10 o'clock. Thank you. 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? <laughs> one more example of a definition of self-control. The Spirit worked grace to stay focused on the truth rather than be seduced by a lie. Example, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. This is the young man we see in Proverbs 7, and he, uh, he notices this good-looking woman out by the street corner, and he goes out, and she begins to seduce him with her words. She's beautiful, no denying. Her words are smooth as butter, no denying that. Now, what does he need to stay focused on? See, uh, the lie is, I've come out to meet you. That's such a lie. She, whoever is the next person in her path she's going to say that to you idiot don't be fooled by that how do you know that's not true right? so we need to be focused on what truth what two truths this woman has a husband who's on a business trip I don't, want to, I don't want to do anything to sin against him I don't want to do anything to sin against her I don't want to do anything to sin against my God who's always faithful to his people those are some truths he needs to fight the lie that I've come out to meet you Right? It's a battle of truth and lies. So losing self-control may be active or passive. Somebody read that uh, the idea that losing self-control can be a, an act of commission. Doing what you shouldn't do. She exploded another person through your pocketbook. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why that golf 
club thing got in there. <laughs> I actually, years ago, now that I'm older and more mature, I'd never do this, ha ha. I actually, in frustration, threw my putter down on the ground like this. And I mean, I'm, you know, just that far, and it broke. And I had to play the rest of the round without a putter. Talk about consequences. <laughs> that was a really good rebuke. So things, the, 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 uh, doing what you shouldn't do or not doing what you should do. Right? You're, you're spending too much time watching TV or on social media when you should be edifying your soul, reading your Bible. You, you, you're sitting on the couch whether you should be exercising. You're being selfish rather than helping others together. You get the picture. Self-control can either be acts of commission or omission. In any case, You've forgotten who you are, a person who's dead to sin, and you've let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. So again, knowing your identity, being in union with Christ, in union with Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to do what God's asked you to do and to fight what God has asked you not to do. You have the resurrection power of Christ. And you've forgotten that. You're not availing yourself of your true resources. We're no longer slaves to sin. We don't have to sin. That's one of the marvels of being in union with Christ. And so the, the, actually, if, if you look at the book of Romans, the first two imperatives in the book of Romans, the first two times Paul commands you to do anything, the first imperative is, in chapter 6, reckon yourself dead to sin. Think of yourself as dead to sin. That's the first imperative. The second is, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Second imperative in the book of Romans. On the strength of what can Paul say, don't let sin reign. It's not reigning. So if you think of your heart when you were in union with Adam, sin held you captive. Any little sin, anything that's in dwell, part of the dwelling sin, your heart was a slave to sin. And Paul says, you've now, if you have a new heart, you've undergone the circumcision of Christ. This indwelling sin has been cut away. It is still with you. Indwelling sin is not gone, right? I'm testimony to the fact that indwelling sin is still in my heart. So are you. And all these sins here still want to reign over you. They still want to rule over you. Paul's saying, don't let them. And he'll get to how you do that in chapter 8. And that is you live by the Spirit. There's a big pause between the middle of 6 and 8 where he tells you how to do that. And part of us is we're, we're trying to understand how you do that. But he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its epithemias. There's that word again. Okay. B. Why is self-control such a struggle? Paul writes in Galatians 5.16. Who would read that for us? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things Thank you, Rita. So if you're uh, in, in union with Christ... You woke up this morning at war with what? Indwelling sin. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God or those through the spoils of Jesus Christ are at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. You're at war with sin. 
indwelling sin wants to control you. It wants to compete against everything the Spirit of God wants to produce in you. It is a conflict. It is a battle. And if you're not aware of this battle, sin is winning. I just guarantee you, sin is getting the better of you if you're not aware of the battle. And we're, we're in this life, a church is a bunch of people who woke up this morning at war with sin, and we're not going to be at war with each other. We have enough sin in here to be battling. Let us help each other with the power of indwelling sin. So notice how many fruits of the flesh involve a loss of self-control. Outbursts of anger, drunkenness, disputes, sensuality. Okay, how do we grow in this grace? Now we're going to go back to this image. A city, like a city whose walls are broken down, is a man who lacks self-control. What a great image. So let's play off that image. God invites us to think about what are the implications of that. Here are a few. We got, what, two minutes and minutes after? A little more. Who is king in the city? Who rules your heart? Our culture says what? What's the mantra of our culture? Progressivism. What's the mantra of our culture? Do your own thing. Do your own thing. Be true to yourself. No one can tell you what happiness is for you. It's your way, right? Be your. Did I tell you this illustration last week when we, Janice and I were watching uh, Lark Rise to Comfort? Did I use this illustration last week? Big I, I told I told you guys. I told you guys. There's a there's a BBC show called Lark Rise to Camelford. It's set in the late 1800s, and and on the TV show, someone was trying to make a decision, some ethical decision, and guess what the punchline was? You have to be your own moral compass. Uh, no one in the late 1800s believed that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Talk about progressive writers importing into the people thinking in the 1800s. They're junk. Unbelievable. You have to be your own moral compass. You know what you get in a culture when that's the case? Anarchy. Chaos. You, no one believes that. For a second, you have to be your own moral compass. Because if your moral compass points to shooting people so you have all the dough, why shouldn't you do that? just insane. It's insane. <laughs> Look at me getting all out of control here. <laughs> Losing my self-control. Christians believe in a king who will rule you better than you rule yourself. That's the good news. Where Jesus is king, there's freedom. Whatever you think is king over your heart, compare it to Jesus. What is he like? He's, he'll never abuse you. He's always just. He loves you unconditionally. He gives you power to meet your needs. He's not oppressive. He liberates. He forgives. And he's able to confront your worst impulses with gentleness. Do you know anybody who can do that? What a king. What a king. Where Jesus is king, it's good. How does the king rule the city? Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. That is debauchery. But be filled with the spirit. Jesus gives us his spirit that by him, he rules in our hearts. He rules by his spirit. He rules when the spirit has control. I think I've shown you this before, but this verb, this is one of those times where the Greek language is immensely helpful to us. This verb, be filled, has a tense. You know what tense it is? It's present tense. And in the Greek language, the present tense conveys ongoing habitual activity. So you can translate it, 
Go on constantly being filled. You're never not seeking to be filled with the Spirit. It has a mood. The mood is an imperative. That means command. You're commanded to be filled. This isn't an option. This isn't something for, for the pastor who really needs to be filled with the Spirit, and he does. This is, you're, we're all commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Probably one of the most disobeyed commands in, in all of Christendom. Five minutes. And there's a voice, and it's the passive voice. Be filled. That means, I think, as Catherine said earlier, we are asking the Spirit of God to produce this. We're asking and we're begging the Spirit to control our desires, our thoughts, etc. And the principal way he does that is with the truth of God's Word. And incidentally, what an interesting image, right? A lot of people say, you know, uh, be filled with the Spirit is, okay, i just got to get more of the Holy Spirit in here. No, you have all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? That's the question. How much of you does the Spirit control? Your thoughts, your dreams, your desires, your ambitions, your plans? The Spirit wants to control those and bring them in conformity to the image of Jesus. So, how does the Spirit keep your heart strong? Through your thinking. Somebody read for us principle number one. Don't believe everything you tell yourself. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12.1. Thank you. Principle number two. Challenge your thoughts as to their veracity and truthfulness. We are destroying every speculation raised up against the knowledge of God and are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Second Corinthians 10.5. Thank you, Shirley. So how often are you seeking to destroy thoughts? I mean, yeah, there's warfare, isn't it? They're coming in. These thoughts are coming into the city of your mind. You need to destroy them. What's the standard? Do they lead, do they lead to obedience to Christ or not? <laughs> Principle three? Become so well acquainted with God's word that you begin to think with increasing conformity to it. If you abide in my word... You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 3. Thank you, Mary. So there's the power, beloved. It's in the Word of God. You, the Word of God abides in you. You abide in it. I don't have any hope for myself or for you, except for a living relationship with the Word of God. You're reading it. You're thinking about it. You're digesting it. You're hearing it preached. You're sharing it with one another. You're discussing it in your home groups. It's all the Word of God conquering the lies, the half-truths that we tend to believe. So I ask this question, is this brainwashing or merely dealing ruthlessly with anything contrary to the facts? What do you think the answer is? What would you like your brain washed of? Lies. Anything that's false. Of course this is brainwashing. Get the lies out of my mind. Get the half-truths out of my mind. I only want the truth. That's freedom. That's true humanity. That's enjoying God. That's the power to have my spirit under control. Get the lies out I want. Just like doing the dishes. Get all that junk off the dishes. Washing away. Absolutely it's brainwashing. It's washing your brain of falsehood. I have some examples uh, that we're particularly tempted to lose self-control. I use one from my own life. Athletic uh, competition. Driving. Spending money when you're feeling lonely and unappreciated. That tends to bring the walls of your heart down. Certain, certain dispositions, feeling lonely, unappreciated. 
And then, how's my time, Mary? Am I out of time? Uh, one more minute. Yeah. So the method of self-control is a Christian two-step. It's faith and repentance. The same way you come into the kingdom, faith and repentance, turning from sin, looking to Jesus, you go, you walk through the kingdom. Faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. You're never not exercising faith and repentance. You're always repenting, you're always looking to Jesus in faith. This is the Christian two-step. We came into the kingdom this way, every day we're living by faith and repentance. And that comes out in this beautiful verse in Hebrews 12, which is, cast, let us cast aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, repentance. Run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the, the point is, you become what you look at. Look more and more and more and more and more at Jesus. He shows you more and more and more and more how unlike him you are and how much he loves you. At the cross, Jesus chose the worst for himself to give us the best of himself. The filthy walls of our sin crushed him, removing God's just wrath, Yet through his resurrection, he surrounds his own with indestructible walls of mercy and grace. Praise be to God. Let's go worship him. Oh, yep. I love that image of the two-step. So we're all dancers. We could all be winners of Dancing with the Stars if we learn the two-step. <laughs>